The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Our study this morning is going to be part two of The Narrow Way and The Rock. Now, as I said last week, this study came out of our last study in 1 Thessalonians, where the Lord commanded them this, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, we can paraphrase this verse, rather than seeking to do wrong to those who have harmed you, Go after that person's highest good with a vengeance. Now think about that. They do evil to you. Whatever it is. However they hurt you. They did it on purpose. They tried to hurt you. They tried to ruin your life. Whatever they've done to you, they've done evil. Your response is not to return evil to them. We're to go after their highest good with a vengeance. This is how we're called to live. This is not normal, and this is not natural. This is supernatural. But Christianity is supernatural. This is how a disciple of the Lord is called to live. We're called to live on a different plane than the world around us. Now, launching from this verse in Thessalonians, we went into Matthew 7, and I'm trying to, in these two, two verses, explain the difference that Christianity should make and how we actually should live. We looked at 7, 13, and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by are many. For the gate's narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, I said last week that I believe that the narrow gate is not the gate to salvation. And most people take that, this is how you get saved. Is it really hard to get saved? Is, this, is that difficult? Because this is a difficult way. Okay? This is not talking about how to get saved. This is about discipleship. And discipleship is living in fellowship with the Lord. It's living a life of obedience to the teachings of Christ. It's abiding in Christ. And it's difficult. Because living this way takes discipline, but it leads to an abundant, joy-filled life. Becoming a Christian, per- people, is not agonizing, it's not a difficult task. You don't have to labor, you don't have to struggle. It happens by us believing the gospel. The Bible teaches we were all dead in sin, separated from God. Then Yahweh, by His great grace, gave life to those He had chosen. And once we receive life, we can believe the gospel. The only condition of eternal salvation is faith in Christ. Now, the whole majority of the church has this backwards. They think, if you believe, God will give you life. Okay, so you're dead, and you're supposed to believe. How does that work? You will yourself to life? No, God teaches He gives life. All right? And then you believe the gospel because you have life. Now, those who hold this lordship salvation, 
we talk about this a lot. They'd say, to be saved is more than just believing. I mean, you can't just believe the gospel. You have to also commit your life to Christ. You've got to turn from your sins. You have to confess Him. You have to be baptized, etc., etc., etc. Depending on the church, they tell you what else you have to do. All right? As we said last week, this is not what we learn from the only New Testament book whose sole purpose is evangelistic. If you wrote a book about how to get saved and you didn't tell people how to get saved in that book, is that book really about how to get saved? No. Well, John wrote the gospel to tell people how to have eternal life. And you can search the gospel and you will see that the only condition of salvation is eternal life and believing the gospel. Believing, that's it. And I think that if people would understand the difference that the Bible makes between being a Christian and being a disciple, this whole lordship versus free grace debate would end. Because the thing is, they're they're worried, the lordship people are worried that you might not be doing enough to say you're a Christian. You're not obeying enough, you're not doing enough, you just, you believed and now you're taking the easy road. See, they're afraid you might not suffer enough, all right? Because they're doing these certain things, they want you to do it. And the line is always right below you. As long as you're doing this, if they're not, you, they're out, okay? People, the Bible teaches we are saved by grace through faith alone. Period. But, as believers, Christ calls us to obedience, to a life of discipleship. Most Christians Reject that call. I say most. I, 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 think I'm, I think that's accurate. Those Christians, they just want to... Their total Christianity is maybe they go to church on Sunday. Or maybe they responded to an altar call. Right? They're not living for Christ. They're not making a difference in the world in which they live. Those on the Lordship side of this debate would say, well, the Lord said that only those who do God's will get into heaven. So salvation is more than believing you've got to obey. Well, let's look at what the Lord said in Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the question we have to answer here is, what does it mean to do the will of God? We'll look at that in a minute, but let's look at the context first. Remember, context is king when you're dealing with the Scripture. Yeshua had warned his disciples about the broad road that leads to destruction. And then in verse 15, he warns them about the danger of false prophets. Because these false prophets want to lead people down this broad road. Well, in verses 16 through 20, they show how to distinguish a genuine prophet from a false prophet. Very simply, Yeshua says, you'll know them by their fruits. Okay? You have to examine what they're saying and do it very closely because sometimes the counterfeits are hard to spot. You've got to examine it. You've got to find out. Yeshua is saying that the doctrines they hold, that's what he's... When he talks about bearing fruit, dealing with false teachers, he's talking about what they say. It's the words they're putting forth. It's the doctrine they're putting forth. If it's... You judge that. You, is that a true? Is that a right doctrine? I didn't watch it last night, but I read an overview early this morning of Trump's speech last night. 
And one thing that really irritated me, he had Kenneth Copeland come on stage and talk. Oh, I wish I'd have been there. I'd have shouted him down so loudly. Talk about a false prophet. I mean, why in the world? That is just... uh, I was sad that the crowd didn't shout him down, you know? I guess people don't know, but that's a false prophet if there ever was one, okay? Well, then in verses 21 through 23, Yeshua enforces his warning by conceding that many of the false prophets will do and say wonderful and impressive things. They prophesy in his name, he says. They cast out demons. They did many wonderful things. They do all these impressive things, but they're not of God. And in verse 20, Yeshua says again, you'll recognize them by their fruits. So the context of verse 21 through 23 is dealing with the false prophets. And these false prophets say, Lord, Lord, but they don't know God. Now the one, those who hold to the Lordship view would say that the expression here, the will of my Father, Yeshua means that this is a life characterized by obedience to all that the Father has commanded. So, those who do the will of the Father would be people who live in obedience to God's revealed will. Well, if doing the will of God in this text means living in obedience to God's moral will, we're all in trouble. Okay? We're all in trouble. No one goes to heaven, he said, but the one who does the will of my Father. What is God's will? Let me tell you one thing that's His will. It's this, that you don't ever repay evil for evil. But the person who does you the most wrong, you seek their best. Now, everybody, all Christians do that, right? (laughs) Do you know any Christians? (laughs) Do Christians live like that? No, their first response is usually to try to retaliate. We want to get even. We want to get, you know, go back at them. That's not, you're not doing the will of the Father. I mean, take the New Testament and look through it. That's God's will. It's His moral will for our lives. Do you see people living like that? Do they love their enemies? Do they seek to do the best for those around them? Do they put others ahead of themselves? That's the will of the Father. Now, that's what it takes to get saved, people. Look what Paul said about faith in Ephesians 2.8. You know this. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, all right? Now, the truth is, technically, we're not saved by faith, but we're saved through faith. In other words, faith is the instrumentality. It's the means. Grace is the efficient means of salvation. We're saved by Yeshua, we're saved by His grace, but we're saved through faith. If I was to say to you, I put the fire out with the hose, you know what I mean? The hose did not put the fire out, right? I was not there with the hose smacking the fire. Come on, go out. No, water came through the hose to put the fire out. The hose is the instrumental means. The water is the efficient means. And faith is the instrumental means by which we are able to access our salvation through Yeshua. Augustine wrote this, Faith is nothing else than to think with assent. It's trusting. Trusting. John Calvin wrote, For as regards justification, faith is something merely passive, bringing nothing of ours to the recovering of God's favor, but receiving from Christ what we lack. Just makes it sound too simple. That's why Lordship doesn't like it. You can't just 
believe something and expect it to be all right. All right? And they're just afraid that, you know, Christians will just run amok because they don't have a bunch of rules they have to keep. But this is what we're talking about today. There are things we're supposed to do. And it does make a difference how we live. All right, let's go back to our text. The one who does the will of the Father here. When Yeshua spoke of doing the will of the Father to obtain kingdom entrance, I believe, based on the analogy of faith, and the analogy of faith is the hermeneutical principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, he had one act of obedience in mind, and that act of obedience was believing the gospel. Look at John 6, 28 and 29. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Yeshua answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. Now notice that Yeshua uses the same word they started with, work, but he puts it in the singular. Yeshua says, this is the work. This is a play on words here. What is that work? The work is believing. But, you know, believing isn't really a work at all. In other words, this is what God requires of you, not works, just trust. Just believe Him. Now, the significance of the modifying phrase here, it says the work of God, indicates that the work of faith is not our effort. It's a gracious gift of God enabling us to trust Him. That faith is to be in the one who God sent. John 6, 40 says, This is the will of my Father. All right? He's going to tell us what God's will is. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. I'll raise Him up on the last day. That's clear enough, isn't it? Again, John wrote this gospel specifically to bring people to faith in Christ. And all so many things that people say are necessary to come to God are not in this gospel. One of the big ones being repentance. You know, you have to repent in order to be saved, people will tell you. Well, if they mean the etymology of the word is changing your mind, that's what repent means. Metanoia means to change your mind. But most people use the word repentance in its typical usage, which is turn from sin. So do you have to turn from sin to be a Christian? How are you going to turn from sin if you're not a Christian? Where's the power to come? Where's the power come from to do that? A person who trusts in Christ alone for their eternal salvation, they're obeying the will of the Father in respect to the gospel. Such a person obtains absolute perfection before God. Positionally speaking, since Christ takes away our sin, he gives us his righteousness and he takes our sin. And such a person can be 100% sure that salvation is his with certainty, based on the word of the Father. You know, people want to base their eternal security on their performance. That's a bad basis. Base it on what Christ said. He said, if you believe, you'll have eternal life. That's okay, I'm basing my security on him. If you base your security on yourself, you'll be, he loves me, he loves me not, you know, all day long, okay? Saving faith is not a matter of doing anything. It is accepting the testimony of God. And if you do, if you believe the testimony of God, if you believe what Scripture says, you have eternal life. John Robbins, who wrote the foreword of Gordon Clark's book, Faith and Saving Faith. Clark is a wonderful theologian, and that's an excellent book if you want to understand this whole topic, Faith and Saving Faith. But anyway, Robbins writes this, Belief of the truth 
Nothing more and nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. Those who maintain that there is something more than belief are quite literally beyond belief. Okay? Now, when you talk about free grace, when you talk about you're just saved by believing, not by things that you do, you're saved by trusting Christ, then the first thing is, well, does it matter how we live? Yes, because how you live is not how you get saved. It's what you believe. But does it matter how you live once you are saved? Absolutely. Absolutely. And how you live doesn't affect your eternal destiny, but it does affect the quality of the life you live here and now. And that's why so many Christians you know are miserable. (laughs) Because they're not living in faith. They're not abiding in Christ. They're not living the life God has called them to live, so they're miserable. Notice how Yeshua closes this sermon. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it's been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, this is how Yeshua ends his message on the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And in this message, it contains all the great ethical precepts of his teaching. He lays out, okay, love your enemies. That's all Christians do that, right? Love your enemies. He says, blessed are the meek. He says, forgive those who wrong you. And he says, forgive those who wrong you time and time and time again. Then he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So he gives us all this teaching, and then he ends it by giving us this little parable here. This is a conclusion, this little story. It's a parable. Now let me ask you, what's the essence of this parable? What is he illustrating by it? What separates the builder, the wise builder, from the foolish builder? It's a one-word answer. What? Obedience. One does the words, one doesn't do them. That's what separates them. You got a fool, doesn't listen. You got a wise person, I'm going to do what he said. You see the difference there? Yeshua is saying something like, you know, it's really important to actually do the things I'm teaching you. Not to think they're good and nice teaching, but to actually do them. Now there's some questions we have to answer here. What do the houses of the wise and foolish builders represent? What storms is Yeshua talking about? How can we build so to withstand the storms? Well, let's begin by identifying the house. I suggest that the houses here represent the lives of all of us, all believers. Each of us is building a life. A life that will respond to the many ups and downs that are going to come our way. And Yeshua is saying in this parable, if you want to protect your life from damage, you've got to be wise and obey my commandments, obey my rules for your life. And please notice that this obedience results in a quality of life and a preservation of life. Do you want to 
have an abundant life? Do you want to live life to the fullest? Do you want to be joyful and blessed? He said, follow my commandments. Now this teaching about obedience and life preservation runs all through the Scriptures. For example, the Proverbs say this, when the tempest passes, that's the storm, when the storm passes, the wicked is no more. Oh, they got blown away in the storm. They're gone. Watch. But the righteous is established forever. If we look at the Old Covenant, and we look at Old Covenant Israel, and people, hopefully you're reading through your Bible every year. After a while, you'll get familiar with some of that Old Covenant stuff, and you know, you're reading through the prophets and Isaiah and Jeremiah. We just, you're coming, if you're following our program, we just finished up the book of Jeremiah. Fantastic book. You know, but Jeremiah just keeps saying, you're sinning, you're going to get judged. You're sinning, you're going to get judged. If you obey, God will bless you. I'm like, that's, keep saying it over and over and over. And then he shows them the discipline they get because they don't obey. It's just like, how slow are we to catch on? You know, life is good (laughs) when you do what you should. All right, look what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 7. He says, the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. So he's standing at the temple and he's saying, okay, listen to you people, listen up. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds. So they're not living right. He's telling you, you got to make some changes here. All right. And I will let you dwell in this place. You like it here? Then you need to obey. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. What the heck? What's he talking about? The false prophets were saying, we're good. The temple's right here. God dwells in the temple. As long as we got the temple, we're okay. Don't worry about anything. Just do whatever you want. The temple of God, that's all you need. He says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. So you see here what's important to God. Make sure you're living a just life. You're not oppressing those who are downcast. And you're not shedding innocent blood in this place. That'd be abortion, okay? Definitely a shedding of innocent blood. And if you do not go after other gods to whom, to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you. So they're trusting in the temple rather than obeying the Lord. They're not humbling themselves before Him at all. The false prophets have assured Him, hey, the temple's here, everything's okay as long as you got the temple, don't worry about it. God said, that's not true. Your obedience is what's important. You're not, it's not the ritual aspect that the temple's here, so everything's going to be okay because you have this temple. You're wrong. Now, when you get to the book of James, which is so misunderstood, James teaches that our deliverance, Christians' deliverance from the destructive effects of sin is directly connected to obedience to the Word of God. The theme verse of James is James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So the purpose of the book of James 
is to teach us how to save our physical lives from the damaging effects that sin brings. James says we are to receive with meekness the implanted word. That word was implanted at salvation. So why should we receive the word with meekness? He says it is able to save your soul. Now, a little confusing translation here. The word for soul here is suke, which can be translated life. And that's probably how it should be translated here. Save your life. So when you talk about saving your soul, he's not telling you this is how you get saved. It is used here of temporally saving your life from damage that sin brings. The expression here, save your souls, in the Greek, sozentensuke, is never used in the New Testament to talk about the conversion experience. And that's our problem. Every time we see the word save, we think eternal life. For the Hebrew, save was deliverance from damage. Deliverance from a... And it can be used to save your soul eternally. But it, it's often used of saving physical damage. Alright? Paul told the sailors on the ship, unless you remain on the ship, you cannot be saved. Oh, that's how you go to heaven. Stay on the ship. Oh, he's telling if you get off the ship, you're going to drown. You can't be saved if you don't stay on it. All right? So James is writing about temporal life. Life here and now. And how to preserve it from damage. And save has the idea of prolong and enhance your life. It's used this way in 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, he's not telling him, Timothy, if you teach right, you'll get saved. Timothy already was a Christian. He's telling, listen, if you teach the Word of God and and you live the proper life, you're setting an example that will save you and those people. It will preserve them from the damage that sin will bring. And that's the idea here. Save from damage. Now, in 122-25, James states and illustrates the need for active obedience to the Word of God to be saved from damage. James says in one twenty-two, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. But indicates something further to be said. It's not enough to hear, he says. Obedience must follow. Literally, it reads, become ye continually doers. Do believers always put the word of God into practice? Now, many Christians mark their Bibles, but their Bibles never mark them. James says here, be doers. This is the Greek word poietes, and it means a performer. It's used six times in the New Testament, four times in James. Why didn't he just say do the word? Because it's one thing to fix a car. It's another thing to be a mechanic. It's one thing to build a house. It's another thing to be a builder. We are not just to occasionally do the Word of God. We're to be doers of the Word. That's to characterize our life. We're doers of the Word of God. He says, not hearers only. This is a croetes, which is a classical term for an academic auditor who listens, maybe takes notes, but there's no assignments, no responsibilities, no tests. They listen, 
but they don't do any of the work. Many people want to audit Christianity. They don't want to get involved in the service. They just want to listen. Many attend church the same way they would a movie. They're just spectators who listen and evaluate the message and how it, you know, how it appealed to them. Hearing is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. James says, you're deceiving yourselves if you're auditing. All right? Deceiving is the Greek word paralogizomai here, and it means to misreckon, to delude, beguile, deceive. It's fallacious reasoning. You're making it a huge mistake. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Colossians 2.4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Don't want to deceive you. If you think that all that's required of Christianity is listening, he said, you're making a big mistake. Now, James now gives us an analogy of someone who hears but doesn't do. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, again, this is all about doing people, he's like a man who looks intently into the natural face in a mirror. All right? The word looks intently here is the Greek word katanoeo. And it means to observe fully, to look carefully and intently at myself. Why do we look at mirrors? Why do we want to see ourselves? We forgot what we look like? Exactly. That's the whole purpose of a mirror. Okay, you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you're like, your hair's going in 10 different directions. You got gunk in your eyes. You know, you've been drooling. You're just a mess. And then what do you do? Okay, see you later. Go to work. No, you fix it. You stay in that mirror until you fix it, at least the best you can. Okay? That's it. That's why as we get older, our eyes get bad, because we don't want to see what's in that mirror anymore. Okay? The reason we're looking is to make corrections. That's why we look. And James 1.24 says he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. He just walks away. He looks at himself. He sees all the flaws. Instead of fixing them, he just walks away from the mirror. Have you ever done that? No, you haven't. <laughs> you looked in that mirror and you worked all you could to fix everything you could because you want it, for the most part, to be the best, okay? I've seen some people that look like they did look at that mirror and just walked away. <laughs> I'm like, I maybe think they don't have a mirror, okay? They wouldn't go out in public like that, all right? <laughs> now, James gives the other side of the, the analogy by showing us the doer. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Again, you get the idea here. It's about doing things. Looks into, this is the Greek word, parakupto. And it means to bend beside, to lean over so as to peer within, to examine closely. So your attitude when you come to the Word of God means everything. Are you teachable? Do you come to the Word of God to learn, to grow? How about when you come here? Do you come here in prayer saying, Lord, teach me from the Word of God today? Or is your attitude, I sure hope David's interesting today. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Do you
Do you read over the text? Do you read over the text before you get here? Do you memorize and meditate on it, asking God to teach you? Or are you just an auditor? I need to warn you. There will be a test. Not from me. <laughs> God's going to test you. In chapter 4, James says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Okay? It's sin. Now, James calls the Scripture the perfect law of liberty. It is God's perfect will for our lives. Seneca said, to obey God is liberty. Does that make sense to you? See, the thing is, our liberty comes through obedience. If you want to have freedom to drive down the highway, you better obey the laws. Because if you break them enough, they'll stick you in a cage and you can't drive anywhere. Okay? Or they'll take your license and say you can't drive anymore. But if you obey the laws, guess what? You got the freedom for the most part. Drive down the highway, do what you want. Now, James says that this man perseveres. This is in the perfect law of liberty. The word used here for perseveres is parameno, from para, which means beside, and mano, that means remain or continue. The emphasis here is not on the manner of looking, but on the duty of continuing or persevering in the observance of the law. That man doesn't forget what he looks at. He keeps looking. And you know how that is. You have to go back to that mirror at least daily, maybe more times, and look and see uh, is everything, how are we doing here? And that's what he says with the Word of God. When you look in the Word of God, you've got to stay in there. It's going to reflect what you're like. I think people, for the most part, don't really want to seriously evaluate their lives because they're afraid of what they might see. We need to be willing to look honestly at ourselves, and we can only do this through the Word of God. In Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, there's a story about a couple pilgrims who are on their way to the celestial city. And they get into the mountains, and they run into some shepherds, and the shepherds give them a beautiful looking glass. And Bunyan writes this, Now the glass was one in a thousand. It would reflect a man one way, with his own features exactly. And that's what, you look in the Word of God, you see yourself. You see what you're supposed to be. You see what you are. But he says, turn it another way, and it would show the very face of the Prince of Pilgrims himself. Yes, I have talked with those who can tell. And they said they have seen the very crown of thorns upon his head by looking into this glass. They've seen also the holes in his hands, in his feet, and in his side, yea, such an excellency is there in this glass that it will show him to one if he has a mind to see it. And they're saying you can see, you look at the Word of God, it shows you your faults. You look at the Word of God and you see Christ. Well, James goes on to say of this man, he says, Don't be a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, and you'll be blessed in your doing. The word blessed here literally means, oh, the happiness. Blessedness, as the Bible defines it, is the heart condition that the whole world's looking for. See, blessedness, biblically defined, is that almost indescribable but very real inner sense of well-being. It's an inner feeling of security and contentment and a positive outlook on life. It's a calm assurance of self-worth. It's the vitality of the Spirit that comes when you know deep down 
All is well between you and God. And just, there's nothing external that can rock this when you have it. Okay? I don't care what the storms of life bring. You're just at peace. You have that peace with God. That peace between you and God. And please notice that it's the doer, again, who's blessed. It's the person who lives in obedience to the Word of God. In the book of John, Yeshua said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. How do we have full joy? He said, if you keep my commandments, your joy will be full. It's through obedience to God. People, how we live according to Scripture makes a huge difference in our life. This man is blessed not by hearing alone. He's doing what the Word of God says. He's blessed because he continues to stare into the Word of God and lives life in obedience to it. Joshua teaches this same idea in Joshua 1.8. He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. That's the purpose of meditating, so you can do it. For then, he says, you'll make your way prosperous. And then, you'll have good success. In this context, meditate is defined by the command The law shall not depart from your mouth. Now, this is really confusing in English here because this is a negative way of speaking that implies a strong positive. (laughs) I mean, you used to read this and say, the law shall not depart from your mouth. I can't tell anybody about this. I'm not supposed to speak it. I'm not supposed to let it out. Uh, If you want to, for a Westerner, this is much cleared up in the complete Jewish Bible that says this. Yes, keep the book of Torah on your lips. And meditate on it day and night. This passage gives us insight into what meditation involves. Meditation is the outward verbalization. And this is to a Hebrew. A Hebrew doesn't just sit down and is quiet. They speak the word of God. They bring it forth from their lips. They're constantly talking the Torah and talking to God. It's a communication. It's a meditation. You're musing over the word of God and you're saying, how am I doing here? How am I responding to this stuff? When I was in college, one of the classes I was taking on a personal evangelism, we had to memorize seven verses a week. And that's different verses. So, it, you know, that's a lot of memorization. I remember one time we were in church, and the preacher was preaching, and I just started crying. I got up and left church and went outside and walked around. And I, you know, I got back, and my friends were like, I didn't get, what did he say that, I said, I wouldn't even listen to him. I was meditating on Romans, and it just broke me. And I had to get away and just, you know, be alone with God for a minute. That's the thing, when the Word of God is going through your mind, it affects you. What's the difference in these two men that James presents to us? One walks away from the Word and doesn't even deal with his sin. The other continues in the Word, and by the power of the Spirit, he submits to the Word of God. He lives this out in his everyday life. So obedience to God brings us a quality of life. It brings us a blessedness. This is great. But here's another thing I want you to understand. When you live a life of obedience, it pleases God. Think about that. Your life, the things you do, 
can be pleasing to God. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, Has Yahweh a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And this is what we read earlier in Jeremiah. They kept saying, the temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God. He said, no, we don't, you don't need all that stuff. The sacrifices, obedience is better. Okay? To obey is better than to sacrifice. Yahweh delights far more in obedience than the performance of worship ceremonies that we may go through. God takes pleasure in our obedience because our disobedience is seen as idolatry. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, He has also rejected you from being king. See, when God says one thing and we stubbornly choose to go our own way, we're idolaters. Because we've actually esteemed the direction of our own mind over God's direction, and we've become guilty of idolatry. And the worst part of it all, the idol is ourself. God takes pleasure in us when our obedience shows that we put our treasure in Him and not in the enticements of sin. He delights in the humility of our submission that loves to make a name for God and not for man. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything. Why do that? It pleases Yahweh. Is that exciting? You want to please You want to please the Lord? Just do what your parents tell you to do. Do you understand this? Obedience pleases God, and disobedience displeases Him. 1 Corinthians 10.5 Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, because they just lived in sin. They wouldn't do what they were told to. He wasn't pleased with them. Look at 1 John 3.21 and 22. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. How do we do that? By keeping the commandments. We don't earn salvation, people, through our obedience. But the Bible makes it very clear that when we disobey, we're not pleasing God. And when we're not pleasing God, we're going to be disciplined by Him. I think so many people have a wrong idea about obedience. They think it's, you know, God is some cosmic killjoy who just wants to ruin your life. He doesn't want you having any fun at all, right? Don't have fun or you'll be sinning. And I don't like that. That's the way many Christians view God. And sometimes Christians really reinforce that view of God as somebody who just doesn't care what you do, cares more what you don't do. However, the reason God wants us to obey Him is really very little to do with Him wanting to keep us from fun. It has to do with him caring about us so much that he doesn't want us to get hurt. God's guidelines for our behavior are there to protect us. Think about it. Think of something named in the Bible as a sin. Get a sin in your mind, okay? Think of one. doesn't matter what it is. A person will always be safer and better off if he doesn't do it. Because whatever that sin is, there's going to be consequences to that sin. All right? I mean, we could name a whole bunch of them, but (laughs) it's almost silly to waste the time. Just pick a sin, any sin, and there's a reason, very obviously, to avoid doing that. Because there are consequences to it. God delights in our obedience because everything God commands for us is for our own good. 
And so what God is really delighting in when He delights in our obedience, He's delighting in our deep and lasting joy. Deuteronomy 6.24 And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh our God for our good always. That He might preserve us alive as we are this day. So God commands us, He says, for our good. He wants the best for us. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh, your God, require of you? But to fear Yahweh, your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. They're not, God's commands are not arbitrary. They're meant to make us well. They're meant to make us happy. Every command of Yeshua is meant for our good. You know, we have a problem today with drugs, uh, mental health drugs. Everybody's on some kind of antidepressant. Why are so many people depressed? Because we're such a self-centered society. Get, you know, obey the Bible and esteem others better than yourself and you'll be doing things to minister to others, and you won't be so self-centered and realize how miserable you are. There's joy in helping others. There's joy in giving. But we've learned we're just so consumer-centered that everybody's miserable. And I never understood the these psychotic drugs anyway. I mean, they got warning on them. It may cause suicide. Oh, good, I'm depressed, so give me a drug that may kill me. I guess that'll end my suicide. I mean, end my depression, right? No, there's another drug that you take for that, and then you get two of them, and then you really don't want to kill yourself anymore. You're happy. <laughs> Nonsense. Those drugs are all, you know, people. Why so many people on drugs? It's, it's part of the, how this works. When Christianity is at a low level today, I mean, you look at what people are re- requiring of Christians. There's nothing. And so... They're brought down so low, there's no difference between Christians and the world. And you wonder why everybody's having all these problems. You know, the word Torah, we usually interpret that as law, but the Hebrews would often interpret Torah as the journey. The journey. And to a Hebrew, command, the word command, is the direction for the journey. So the Torah is that here's the journey and here's the commands in there to give you directions for the journey. And to the Hebrew, righteousness is traveling on the path. And the wicked, they get off the path. And so if we could grasp this Hebraic concept of Yahweh's word, I think it change our thinking and change our walk. You know, we don't like commandments. I don't like commandments. Let me be personal. I don't know about you. Maybe you like them. All right. They seem restrictive. When you say, don't do this, what do I want to do? When I walk into a place and they say, put a mask on, I'm like, no, it's not happening. I turn green and my clothes rip off and I'm like, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm going to fight it. Okay, I don't like that. I don't like it because it's, it's nonsense, all right? So we don't like commands, but directions are beneficial, right? Go this way. Especially if you get somewhere, you know, you're not, you're not in a place you know and you need directions. How do I get here? Directions are very helpful, you know. 
If you want to get to the place, you follow these directions and you'll be all right. Well, if you want a life of fellowship with the Father, if you want a life of joy and peace, you have to follow the directions that Yahweh's given us. Because to not follow the directions and to leave the path is not to arrive at your goal of joy and peace. Yahweh has laid out directions for the path in His Word. We need to study it. We need to read it. We need to follow it. We need to cry out to God for strength to do it. All right, back to our text. Verse 25, he says, The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, it beat on the house, and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. All right? What storms is Yeshua talking about here? Well, I think he could be talking about regular storms. The storm is anything that threatens your well-being. Okay? It could be a literal storm. Tornado, hurricane, floods, those can threaten your well-being. Right? They can take away your property. They could kill a loved one. And how we respond to such tragedies will reveal the quality of our building, our life. Will we be emotionally devastated when life throws us some kind of curveball? Will we be able to stand strong, willing to continue without despair? It may involve physical storms, such as an illness, a loss of a loved one, a financial setback which could take away our health, could take away our family, could take away our possessions. Again, how we respond to such tragedies reveals the quality of the life that we built. Will we be emotionally devastated? Will we fall apart? Or will we be able to stand willing to continue without despair? Now you may be thinking, well, how is obedience to God help us weather storms? The answer is that when you live in obedience, you live in fellowship with God. Okay, John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, again, this obedience thing, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and will manifest myself to him. When you follow God, God's going to, he says, I'm going to love you, I'm going to manifest myself to you. He goes on in 15.10 to say, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I abide in His love. Listen, when you're living in fellowship with God, you're able to deal with any kind of storm that life throws at you. Okay? Look at Paul. Look at his life. What was he doing? Being obedient to God. Right? Preaching the gospel. And everybody welcomed him and loved him and praised him for it. Right? No. He was a criminal, okay? He had a felony record, all right? He's been in every jail and every town he went to, all right? What happens when he got in jail? Did he get mad? Did he get upset with God? God, you told me to preach the word. I preached the word, and now I'm in jail. I got beat. I'm in jail in stocks. What am I supposed to do? No, he sang. And he sang at midnight because the Psalms say at midnight, we'll lift our praise to you. And he's following Scripture because he lived Scripture. And this, this circumstance didn't rattle Paul. Because he was in fellowship with God. And when you walk in fellowship, you don't get rattled. How about Job? He had a few storms in his life, didn't he? How did he make it through? Well, the Bible says he was a doer of the word. He lived in obedient life. Look what God says about Job. This is God's opinion. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's talking to say, hey, did you see Job? He's a great guy over here. Look at There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Wow, that's quite a 
recommendation there coming from God, huh? It was because Job lived in fellowship with God that he's able to handle the storms that he faced. The same is true of Paul. It was his relationship to the living God that enabled him to endure the hardships that he faced. People's storms are going to come. All your life, there's going to be storm after storm. You'll have some nice calm spots, and when you're calm, you'll be waiting for the next storm, okay? But they're going to keep coming. They're just to strengthen us, to encourage us, build us up in the faith. Well, how do we build a life that's able to withstand the storms? How do we do that? Well, the metaphorical storms of life are inevitable, but Yeshua reassures us and says, if you're smart, you'll build a solid foundation by obedience, and those storms, they won't destroy you. So let's talk for a minute about the beneficial nature of the Word of God. Once a museum had do not touch signs on all their exhibits, okay? Again, dumb thing. You know, you don't tell people not to do something, okay? It said still they had all kinds of problems with people touching things, soiling their priceless furniture and their art. So finally, somebody got smart at the museum and took off the do not touch signs, and they put a sign up that says, caution, wash hands after touching. (laughs) Nobody was touching their stuff anymore. Why? They didn't say don't touch. They just said, be careful. Wash your hands. And they're like, whoa, I'm not touching that. (laughs) Why? Because it wouldn't be beneficial to touch it. Right? And I think you can present the Christian life in such a way that it looks like nothing but a bunch of rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do anything that might be fun. But that's the worst light you can put it in. The truth is God's rules are more like a caution sign not than a do not touch sign. It's a caution sign. They're there for our own protection, our joy, our fulfillment. Yeshua doesn't say, you better obey my words or the Father's going to punish you. He says, you better listen and follow through on my words so that you'll be able to survive the storms of life. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a foolish man who does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew. He built on the sand, it was a dumb place to build. So the house falls, and he says, great was the fall of it. Yeshua said that the one who hears the word of God and does not act upon him, they're foolish. You're a Christian, you know what the Bible says, you're going to do your own thing. I know the Bible says that's wrong, I don't care. Now the word translated foolish here is the base for the English word moron. Because if you don't obey God, you're a moron, okay? Because you're just bringing trouble on yourself. The one who hears and does not act upon the Word of God, that's foolishness. That's moronic. Notice where the contrast is between these groups here. Both groups hear the Word of God, but the difference is in the response to the Word of God. Response is the crucial issue. And that's where Yeshua wants us to focus. Some are doers. He gives this sermon and he says, please do what I'm asking you. To preserve your life from damage. To save yourself from the destruction. God's guidelines for our lives are given for the purpose of our protection, for our happiness. There's a wide host of guidelines that God has for us that the world says are ridiculous. And that's the problem today. Too many Christians are just falling after the world. Guidelines about the sanctity and exclusivity of the marriage relationship. 
They're trying to destroy marriage today. They're trying to destroy masculinity today. They're trying to destroy the kids so the kids aren't male or female. And they're just trying to destroy the family. Because the family is a building block, all right? They, society just laughs at the restriction that God puts in His Word on sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sex outside of marriage is a sin. And it's damaging. God says it is. People don't care. And they suffer the consequences. And too many Christians fall into this whole thing. You've got to protect yourself. The emphasis in the Scripture on others before self over and over, God says, we're to care for others. My wife was sharing the scripture with a, with a friend about, an acquaintance, let's say, about we're supposed to esteem others better than ourselves. And the lady said, I don't believe that doctrine. She said, well, it's just right here in Philippians 2. You don't believe the Bible? No, I, they didn't want to believe that. You know, I don't, that's, hard. that's hard. Putting others before yourself? I don't want to do that. Okay. You know, the emphasis in the Scripture on forgiveness freely given when asked for. It's hard sometimes. Someone wrongs you. It's hard to forgive that person. But when you don't forgive, the bitterness and the hatred tears you apart. That's why we're called to forgive. It doesn't mean you forget it. You never forget the wrong done. But if you memorize Genesis 50, 20, it'll be helpful. Because you can go to that person and say, you meant evil against me. But guess what? God Meant it for good. That's awesome. Because <laughs> I don't care what situation you're in. If God means it for good, then you're good, right? Every one of God's rules are there for our benefit. For our good. And if we're smart, we'll realize that. Yes, they're difficult. Yes, it's not easy to follow these things. Because people can really make you angry. Right? Right? People can upset you. And there's this call in Scripture to forgive them and get along with them and, and do these, follow these guidelines, and, and it blesses your life. People, I can tell you, there, there's no better place to be than in fellowship with God, in communion with God by obedience, because, it, like I said, it's just a place that can't be touched by the world, can't be touched by anybody. You're walking hand in hand with the Creator of the world. Life is good. What's going to hurt you or come against you when you're walking with the Creator? Nothing. You're in, a, you're in a place that is just amazing. And that's what so much of the New Testament's about. It's about abiding in Christ. Because it's written to Christians. The New Testament's not written to heathens. Okay, John uses his book evangelistically. But most of the New Testament's written to believers, telling believers how to live. So they can have joy. So they can be at peace. And the reason we need all these instructions is because naturally we want to go the other way. We don't want to follow God. But when we go our own way, it costs us. Let's pray. So where do you fit in this morning? Are you a doer of the Word? Are you building on a rock of obedience that will give you a stable foundation in life no matter what comes your way? Or are you doing your own thing? You're being a foolish builder. You're building that house on the sand because you know the truth and you don't obey it. Lord, I pray you'd give us the ability and the honesty 
to see our lives for what they really are. Lord, help us to realize how much you love us and how much you want to bless us and care for us and have us live a life of joy and peace and fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that we'd be involved in each other's lives and helping and encouraging and supporting each other along the way, Lord. The path can be difficult at times. It's much easier to have someone there walking with us, encouraging us along the way. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? All right, I got a, uh, someone's, I'm not even sure who this is from, but they say, thanks for today's teaching. And the question is, is the last day in several of John 6 passages a timestamp? Yes, it is. Okay. If so, does it affect the application for today? For instance, John 6, No, I don't think it affects the application for today. He is telling them judgment is coming. All right. If you don't live right, there's a judgment coming. Either way, there's a judgment coming. He's talking about the 8070 judgment where Israel would be shut down forever. What about us for today? Yes, there's still a judgment. It's what we talked about today. There's a temporal judgment for living wrong. Here, now, and here and now should be kind of important to us because we're living here and now. Yeah, he, and then he quotes John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. He's talking about the last day, the resurrection that would take place on the last day. That's what he's referring to there. But I think, you know, and again, you know, context and who's the audience, we've got to understand all that. But a lot of these principles are directed to the church, and we're the church. So they're applicable to us. All right? And I think it's still very applicable. Nobody comes, you should have said, nobody, unless the Father drags him. And the one who dra- he drags, he'll lift up at the end. 